Hey, Voices of a Killer fans, Toby here to talk about an exciting podcast that you might like. If our journey into the minds behind the bars has captivated you, then you'll find Prison Pod equally gripping. It's a podcast that delves deep into the lives affected by incarceration, offering firsthand stories from those on both sides of the cell. Available on Apple, Spotify, and Amazon, Prison Pod broadens the conversation around the impacts of jail and prison. Search for Prison Pod wherever you get your podcasts to listen to the real stories of those living a life defined by bars. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Before we begin this podcast, Please be advised that the following episode contains language that some listeners may find offensive and inappropriate. The opinions expressed by the host and guests are their own and do not reflect the views of the podcast producers. Listener discretion is advised. And you haven't contacted anybody yet? No. No, I'm standing there thinking about, you know, I'm going to prison. I'm, I'm gone. I'm going to jail. My kids. What about my daughters? No, I was thinking of them. So what I did was I went in there and I, I took like a, a dog leash and I tied it around her neck and she had a few gurgling noises. How far did you drive want, from where the murder scene was to where you buried her? Three, four counties away. I don't know, 45 minutes maybe at that. Did you pack up a, a shovel and everything with you? Yes. I packed up a shovel. I threw a fishing pole in because if anybody come by, I figured they'd, they would just think that I was fishing. And she'd be like, Terry. Why did this happen? Why did you do this? You are now listening to the podcast Voices of a Killer. I'm bringing you the stories from the perspective of the people that have taken the life of another human and their current situation thereafter in prison. You will see that although these are the folks that we have been programmed to hate, they all have something in common. They are all humans like us that admit that they made a mistake. Will you forgive them or will you condemn them? They are currently serving time for their murders, and they give us an inside glimpse of what took place when they killed and their feelings on the matter now. Here are the voices of those who have killed. 
Welcome to another gripping episode of Voices of a Killer. In today's episode, we will be exploring the chilling and profoundly tragic story of Terry Myers and Cheryl Russell, a story filled with volatile relationships, drug abuse, and a violent end that left families shattered and communities in disbelief. We'll ask the tough questions, what drives a man like Terry to commit such a heinous act? And most tragically, what led to the irrevocable and devastating loss of Cheryl Russell's life? And just a note about the victim in the case, Cheryl Rose Stewart Russell. Throughout the story, she is referred to as both Cheryl Stewart and Cheryl Russell. So sit back and listen closely. This is not just a story about crime and punishment. It's also a probing look into the human psyche, the circumstances that can make a person fall from grace, and the immeasurable pain left in their wake on this episode of Voices of a Killer. So, Terry, where are you from originally? I was born in Eugene, Oregon, and I was raised in Northern California, a town called Orville, above Sacramento, about yeah. an hour north of Sacramento. And then at some point, you moved to Missouri? Yeah, and I come out in 94, and then in Nevada. I went to Nevada, Missouri in 94, and I stayed out here. And then uh, after a few years, I went back to California and then came back out, stuff like that, visit family and everything. How would you describe your childhood? My childhood was good. My father was a police officer, and then he became disabled. And uh, I remember hunting and fishing and camping and baseball. And my parents were good people. They didn't beat us or or molest us or nothing like that. Did you feel like having a a father as a police officer, there was a lot of strict rules enforced, or or how was that? Yeah, yeah. Like I say, we did a lot of, of wrong, stupid stuff when we were kids, like breaking into school and civil rockets and stuff from the space science class. But, but I mean, he didn't spank us over it. He crowned us, but that wouldn't last more than a day or two. Did you witness any kind of violence in your family or alcoholism or drug addiction? I witnessed my Uncle Jack kicking in the door and, and attacking my father right after he had back surgery. All of us kids jumped in, and I hit him with an ashtray. I remember stuff like that. Yeah. My brother was, was, Roy was kind of violent towards me. I mean, he put me in hospital once for five days because he hit me in the stomach. And he was always doing stuff to me. Beating me down and stuff like that. How many siblings did you have? I have two older brothers and an older sister. Yeah, do you still have a relationship with them? No, my brother took my stimulus money. Yeah. And wow. the only one I talk to now is my sister in California. My brother, my brother stopped talking to me a couple of years ago. Yeah. I got two daughters and they live in Joplin. And I haven't spoke to either one of them in a couple of years. Are they mad at I you? Think my youngest daughter, all right. My youngest daughter loved uh, Cheryl. That's my victim in this case. And everything was Cheryl. She had to be around Cheryl. Cheryl took good care of her. But Cheryl had her own issues. And after the murder and stuff, and I came to prison, my daughters went to foster care because their original mother was a, a drug addict and didn't want them. And she left us when they were seven and eight. So it's always been me and my daughters. Yeah. And it took a toll on them. And I think my youngest daughter don't talk to me now because hidden anger because of Cheryl, what I did, murder. Okay. My oldest daughter, she's fallen off the wayside. You know, she's a nurse, but she's gotten into drugs, I believe. And she ain't spoke to me in a couple of years either. Had you ever gotten into drugs? Yes. What kind of drugs I did started, you get into? 
I started smoking pot at, at 15. First time I ever heard the word methamphetamine, I was 16, 16 and a half, and my brother told me to stick my arm out, and he gave me a shot of dope. I've never seen a glass pipe, a line, or anything until that night when he told me to put my arm out and give me a shot of dope. So you had actually, your first experience with hard drugs was shooting meth? Yep. How did that make Very you feel? Fun. Man, it made me feel invincible. You know, it used to be. And then, you know, after that, it was it was like fun. I'd stay up all night, and I'd, I'd get high and stuff like that. And I would just basically do what I wanted. Yeah. You know, run the streets, get in trouble, steal stuff, get high. Do you feel like at this time that you could see your life taking a, a turn? Not at that time, no. I thought it was just all for fun. Yeah. You know, I thought there was always time to grow up. What did you do for a living? I've had a few summer jobs, like instruction worker, and for like the JTPA and CETA jobs. But as I got older, and I got with a girl who later became my wife, had my daughters, I had to get a, a real job. And that was like at 20, 23, 24 when I first moved out to Missouri. And I worked at a recycling center for like five years. And then uh, I did forklift driving, and I did asphalt, building roads and stuff for a man in the state of Missouri. Did you do meth at all at this point in time, all these jobs? Yes. I became what I like to call a weekend warrior. I would work through the week because I had to pay bills, keep a roof over my daughter's heads. But on the weekends, I'd get rammed dope and get high and have sex and tear things apart and put, try to put them back together. Do you feel like at this point in time you're describing, do you feel like you were a violent person or you had it in you or the drugs made you in oh, a yeah. way? Yeah, I had it in me. I caught my best friend of 17 years having sex with my girlfriend of three years when I was 19. And I beat him with a ball peen hammer. And I beat him pretty bad. And there's a few times where uh, I went over to people's houses and I took stuff, you know, because they didn't pay. And they didn't pay money or they wanted something I had. And I was just, I was always big. I mean, over 6'5", 280 pounds. I was a big boy. And I just take what I wanted. You know, I, I felt they owed me. Had you ever been to prison before? No. No, I've been arrested for a strong-arm assault and extortion, but I got a lawyer and beat the charges. Born in Eugene, Oregon, and raised in Northern California, Terry Myers had a relatively stable upbringing. His father was a police officer, and he describes his parents as good people. The household wasn't particularly strict, even though they engaged in youthful misadventures like breaking into their school. However, violence wasn't entirely absent from his early life. Myers recalls his uncle violently attacking his father and mentions their particularly fraught relationship with his brother Roy, who once hospitalized him for five days. As Myers grew older, his life began a downward spiral, fueled by drug use and violent tendencies. By the age of 16, he was introduced to methamphetamine by his brother, a drug that made him feel quote-unquote invincible, and led him down a path of petty crime, including theft and assault. Meth is a strongly addictive drug, and those who use it tend to devote most of their time to funding their addiction. For Terry, this meant becoming a self-described weekend warrior, staying clean during the week to work but delving into drugs over the weekends. This pattern would tragically culminate in the volatile, drug-fueled relationship with Cheryl Russell that ended in murder. At what age did you meet the victim, Cheryl Stewart? I was 38. And what was y'all's relationship? My wife had just been arrested and charged with selling drugs inside of a school zone, and she was in the county jail in Nevada, Vernon County, and she was looking at seven to ten years. You met her while your wife was in jail? 
Yeah, before she'd even been sentenced to prison. So how did you meet her? Where was this happen? I was in Nevada, and my neighbors were having a, a Christmas uh, Eve party, and they okay. called me over, and that's when I met her. Did y'all do drugs together? Yeah, after about the first couple of days, yeah. Yeah. Did y'all get into a relationship while your wife was in prison? Yes. Describe that relationship. Yeah, was it steady, or did y'all have a lot of turbulence? Oh, it was It was like oil and water. It really was. We should never have been together. But it's like... She would, there were police reports for my daughter would call the police or I would call the police or the neighbors would because she would get drunk and she would assault me and she would just, she would break things, she would yell things and then we would separate and we'd be separated for a week or two and then we'd always just go seek each other out again. I would go find her or she would come find me. What do you think your biggest point of contention was? Why was there friction? Because we were doing drugs. Yeah. And we would think things about each other, like either she was messing around on me or I was messing around on her. Or another thing is my wife was in prison and I would send my wife a little bit of money here or there and I would take my daughters to see her. I took her twice to see her because they gave her seven years. And I took the girls up there two times to see her and there was just, she didn't want me to go so she cut the gas line on the car so I couldn't leave. Sounds like a pretty rocky relationship. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She kicked out my windshield from the inside one time. She almost uh, tried to run me over once with a car. Meeting Cheryl at a neighbor's Christmas Eve party, their relationship quickly escalated into a turbulent and volatile affair fueled by drug use. Describing their union as quote-unquote oil and water, Terry recounts instances of frequent domestic disturbances involving the police more than once. Cheryl, often in a drunken state, would resort to physical aggression and property damage while the relationship itself seemed to be underpinned by jealousy and suspicion on both sides. The tension between them reached destructive levels, exacerbated by their ongoing drug use and by Terry's attempts to stay connected to his imprisoned wife, which Cheryl clearly resented. And in an alarming display of conflict between them, Cheryl even took the drastic steps of cutting the gas line of Terry's car to prevent him from visiting his wife in prison. The violent tendencies that both had exhibited throughout their relationship came to a head in a terrible way, ending in a loss that neither of their families would ever recover from. What year did this murder take place? 31106. 2006? Yeah. What exactly happened yeah. that day? I was working at one of the uh, day job things where you, you go to work that day and you get paid that afternoon. Peace and, work? Uh, yeah, temp work. Yeah. And uh, the job that I was working at told me that, that I was doing really good. I had a, you know, I could do forklift. I could do everything they wanted. And they were really liking me, so they kept calling me back. And the boss, his name was Ben, told me, if you can pass a drug test, we're going to hire you. So I stopped. I didn't do no drugs. I wanted this job. I, mean, I need this job. You know, I had bills to pay, kids to raise. And it was good money. So I, I wasn't doing nothing wrong. And But she still was. And like I say, you know, she had a, she got Social Security, you know, because she, she had mental illness. She never took medication. She should have, though. And she was 10 years older than me. Anyway, it was Friday night. I just got paid. And I wasn't doing nothing because of this job. I needed this job. And she kept on me, harping at me, never do anything I want to do. You never do anything I want to do. You don't care about me. And I'm like, all right, all right, let's do a shot. So she went over to somebody's house. When you say a shot, you mean mean shoot up meth? Yeah. Okay. I said, okay, let's do it. And she left, she came back about an hour later, and she had some, and we did it. And it just, it wasn't that good. It really wasn't that good. So we got an argument over that. I said, it's crap. I said, you know, I 
I'm risking everything, you know. And about 11 o'clock that night, she come in the room. I was laying down in bed. That's how good stuff was. I was laying down in bed. And she started kicking the bed, telling me to give her some money. And just want some more. And I'm like, I ain't paying for that. It ain't no good. And uh, she got me a, a handheld crossbow for Christmas, like a toy. Mm-hmm. And then she went to cock it and put an arrow in it. She couldn't get it cocked because she couldn't pull it back. Well, I got up out of bed and I, I left the bedroom and I'm heading into the, into the kitchen, the front room area. And she throws it at me. Yeah, she threw the crossbow at me. And it's like I said, it's a little handheld one that goes on your wrist. And I'm like, just leave. Just leave me alone. Just leave. And she reached over and she grabbed this knife. And she started coming at me, swinging it. And I'm thinking, thinking now she's just going to really kill me. You know, she tried to kill me a few other times. Anyway, I, I I hit her in the throat and took her to the ground. And I strangled her. You strangled her? Yeah. I, I didn't mean to kill her. And I picked up the phone and I, 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 was, I had the nine dialed for 911. I dialed the nine and then I thought about my daughters. I'm a single parent. Their own mom don't want them. And I told Cheryl, I said, I have to do something. I have to, I have to do something with, with Cheryl. So I had to get my kids to safety in California, my family. And I was going to turn myself in. And so I went outside to smoke a cigarette because my daughters were staying the night at her friends like four houses down. On the fateful evening of March 11th, 2006, the tumultuous relationship between Terry and Cheryl Stewart reached a tragic breaking point. Terry, focused on turning his life around, had been working temp jobs in the hope of landing a more stable employment opportunity. He had abstained from drug use, committed to passing a drug test for a job he desperately wanted and needed. Cheryl, however, continued her own troubled path, struggling with untreated mental illness and ongoing drug abuse. The tension between them boiled over that Friday night. At first, Terry resisted Cheryl's insistence on using drugs again, worried about jeopardizing his chance for a job. Eventually, he relented, a decision that he'd regret. The confrontation escalated dramatically. Terry struck Cheryl in the throat and strangled her in an attempt to defend himself from her attack. He found himself dialing the first digit of 911 before hanging up. Thinking about his daughters, his sole responsibility as their mother was already in prison. It was an agonizing complex moment. Terry took a life. While considering the lives of his children and the loss they would suffer if he turned himself in right away, Terry admits he didn't mean to kill Cheryl. Nevertheless, she lost a life that night, a life already steeped in suffering and turmoil. It was a bleak culmination of a relationship that should have never been, a blend of toxic behaviors, desperate emotions, and at the end, a fatal encounter. As tragic as the loss of Cheryl's life was, the story doesn't end here. I had no options because I had to get rid of her so I could save my daughters so they wouldn't end up in foster care. And that's just what happened to them. They ended up in foster care. That and more after the break. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, 
People that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. And you haven't contacted anybody yet? No. No, I'm standing there thinking about, you know, I'm going to prison. I'm, I'm gone. I'm going to jail. My kids, what about my daughters? You know, I was thinking of them. And, and I, you know, so what I did was I went in there and I, I took like a, a dog leash and I tied it around her neck and she had a few gurgling noises. So I didn't know if she's still alive, but I assumed she was dead. It was just impulses. You know, I've seen people die before. So I tied the body up. And I wrapped her in a sheet and I put her in the trunk of the car. And I waited till almost sunup. I think it was around sunup. And I was going through the trailer and I'm just racking my brain. I'm thinking, I'm crying. And I can't believe this is happening. And a driver about four counties away to a place where we'd gone fishing and camping a couple different times. And I dug a hole and buried her. And I kept telling her, as soon as I can, Cheryl, I'm going to come back. As soon as I can, I'm going to come back. And then I left there and I talked to my brother, Roy. Whenever she attacked you with the knife, obviously yeah. you defended yourself. How did you get her to the ground? Did you punch her and knock her down, or did you just grab her and throw her down? Tell me a little, little the, detail. I caught her wrist with my left hand and then took my right hand and rubbed her throat and took her right to the ground and just squeezed and held her there. Do you think if you wouldn't have grabbed her hand that she would have stabbed you with the knife? Yeah, she, she'd already backed me all the way up to the, almost the bedroom. She took like five, four swings at me. So one of the things that I... I'm certain of, not only because I've interviewed people that have strangled others, but I just know, you know, medically it takes a long time to actually kill someone by strangling them. So, and I've asked this question, I want to see what your answer is. How long did it take from the time that you put your hands on her throat to you letting go to deciding it's been done? How many minutes? At least, I would say three to five the, the autopsy said that I broke her saying uh, when I hit her in the throat, they said that I broke it. Broke what? Something about something inside the throat. Did you have two hands uh, on her throat choking her? I had one, and then as soon as I let go, as soon as I let go of her, her right hand, I used the other one on her. So yeah. Were you straddling and her body on top of her? I was. Yeah, I was on top of her. Was she trying to grab your hands to pull them off as you're choking her? She was trying with her left hand. What was, but I was holding the right hand. If we were to sit here and count to 120 seconds, which is two minutes, is the minimum that you would probably hold somebody, but you're saying more than that. What is going through your head while you're choking her? Yes, why is this happening to her? And did you I'm ever, scared. during the process, did you ever let go and then and think about it and start back again? Or you just, when you started, you never stopped? I don't think I started back again. I think when I went outside to smoke a cigarette and I came back in, that, that maybe there was a slight chance, but she was still alive, but I was pretty sure she was dead. She made a couple little noises. Like I thought there were just body noises. 
So those prompted you to make sure she was finished off. You wrap something around her neck. Yeah. And yep. you, you tighten that leash and, and did you see her react to you tightening it? Did no. you, did you ever check her pulse or anything to see if she was still alive? No. Was her eyes open? Yeah. Did you shut them? They wouldn't shut. They would open right back up. Did that kind of mess with you seeing that? Yeah. yeah. How did that make you feel whenever you tried to shut her eyes and they just looked at you? I saw it in the movies, you know, where they closed their eyes and, and their eyes stayed closed, but her eyes just stayed open. Did that kind of creep she you out? Like, she, just, she just looked at me. She just looked at me. Did that kind of mess with you a little bit? Yeah, it mess, messes with me a lot. I take medication now. Do you ever have dreams about that? Yeah. I see her in the woods, and she's naked, and she's looking at me from behind a tree in the forest because we did a lot of camping, and she'd be like, Terry, Terry, why did this happen? Why did you do this? And it, yeah, I cried a lot, you know? That haunting image of Cheryl appearing in Terry's dreams is evidence that the burden of his actions and their irreversible consequences continue to affect him deeply. The act of strangulation itself had taken several minutes, a long, harrowing stretch of time where Terry was caught in a mental struggle, questioning why this horrific scenario was unfolding. He wasn't entirely sure Cheryl was dead even then. A suspicion confirmed by a few lingering noises from her body, he eventually ended it all with a dog leash that he had strung around her neck in an attempt to finish her off. The disrespect that Terry had for Cheryl in that moment was echoed in court documents. According to the testimony, one of the officers who interrogated Terry after his arrest, when asked why he used the dog leash, Terry responded, quote unquote, so that bitch wasn't going to hurt me again. His contempt for Cheryl wouldn't end there. As Terry came to grips with what had happened, he attempted to get rid of the evidence by digging Cheryl a shallow grave. How big of a woman is this, uh, you know, weight and height? Oh, she's at least 190 pounds. She wasn't no little girl. She wasn't fat, though. She's tall. And you had to wrap her up and put her in your trunk? Yeah. How did you wrap her up? I wrapped her up in, in, in a sheet, and she kept falling out of the sheet. And I struggled to get her out the door and down the stairs because there was dead weight. I mean, and then I had to scoop her and do my best to get her in the trunk of the car. What's going through your head whenever you're, you basically just... I'm looking just, around. Yeah. I'm, I'm looking around and seeing if anybody sees it. And I'm thinking, oh no, this just can't be happening. This is a dream. It's a nightmare. It's my worst nightmare. It can't be happening, but it was happening. So you buried her. Was there any other options you were going through your head, like what I can do? What, what were the I other options? Like I said, I had the phone in my hand and I had nine pressed. I had no options because I had to get rid of her so I could save my daughters so they wouldn't end up in foster care. And that's just what happened to them. They ended up in foster care. So, Terry, you, you get her in the car. Do you immediately yeah. get in the car and drive off or do you sit back and no. kind of think about things? I sit back and think about things. And I've already tried to call my brother twice, but like he was a long-distance truck driver, so he wasn't answering his phone, so I was thinking he was sleeping. Was there anybody and, else uh, that you reached out to? Well, when the sun come up... So you actually waited till the sun kind of came up, and that's when you left with the body? Yeah. Oh, well, the body was already loaded. Right. And I how, loaded the body. How far did you drive from, from the where the murder scene was to where you buried her? Three, four counties away. I don't know, 45 minutes maybe at that. Were you real paranoid yeah, that you'd get pulled over? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. What kind of car were you in? Oh, yeah, yeah. I think it was a little uh, a little, a little Ford. I really don't know the car. 
So did you pack up a, a shovel and everything with you? Yes. Just yeah, I packed up a shovel. I threw a fishing pole in because if anybody come by, I figured they'd, they would just think that I was fishing. So anybody that is from this area, Missouri, knows that whenever you dig a hole, there's a good chance you're going to hit rock. So did you find a spot that was fairly easy to dig? Yeah. Yeah, like I say, I've been to this spot several times, fishing and camping and stuff. That's where we, you know, what we do. Anyway, I, I knew the ground was soft. So you went out there and kind of found a spot where you felt like you could dig and keep your vehicle there to yep. act like you're fishing? Yeah, yeah. It was only like 17, 18 inches deep at that. So you dug a pretty shallow grave? Yes, yes. Did you get to pull the vehicle right up to it, or did you have to drag her that way? I, I backed the vehicle up as far as it would go, and then I had to drag her like an extra 20 foot yeah. down like a little five-foot-tall ravine. So you really didn't dig no more than two feet, less than that? Yeah, yeah. Was that pretty tough, trying to dig that and stressing somebody to walk up? Yeah. You're probably... What, yeah, I kept what, looking around. What time of year I was kept, it? It was March. It was still cool, but the sun is, would, you know, warmed up some March. So you were probably breaking a good sweat trying to dig this grave? Yes, yeah. So you put her in there and you have to bury it. Does it leave like a mound of dirt, you know, where it's obvious yeah. or you... What does that look like? Yes. Yeah, it was a mound of dirt, about six foot, six foot long. Did you put her face up or face down? I think I put her on her side. Yeah. Yeah, naked, naked on her side. Did you, like, say any kind of last words, or were you, like, just freaked out? I dude? told her I'd be back. I told her I had to get the girls to safety, because I didn't want them to, you know, bad things to happen to them, go to foster care, because nobody wanted them. Is it, did you have you kids know? with this woman? No, no. Oh, my daughters were with my first, my only wife. Yeah, Tina. Yeah. Tina's her, her name. So after you get her buried and yeah. you load up your shovel, I'm suppose, I'm guessing you loaded up your shovel and you went to your previous wife's house that used to be in prison? Yeah. And you literally just say, hey, I just killed yep. Cheryl? Yes, I did. Yes. And you said that she laughed at you? Yeah, she laughed. She's good. She didn't like that bitch. Well, did she laugh because she didn't think you were serious, or or she laughed because she really thought you did it? She really knew I did it. She knew you were serious? Yeah. She said she didn't like that bitch anyway. Were you not worried that she would call the police on you? No, I knew she would. Well, I I don't know. I mean, she could have, but I didn't think she would. Instead, she took me to a car wash and pulled out the trunk lining and said she had to clean the car out. And I stood there watching her while she took a, as a car washer the, the nozzle and sprayed it, the car, give it a walk the car and that trunk and stuff. Yeah. And then within hours, I spoke to my brother and told him what was going on. Two days later, or the next night, my brother's like, we need to move the body. We've got to move the body, Terry. Terry recounts the surreal sequence of events that followed that fateful night. The weight of Cheryl's lifeless body and the eerie silence of the night pierced through his consciousness as he struggled to wrap her up and load her into the trunk of his car. It's interesting how Terry is able to provide such clear details of what unfolded. From the sweat of his brow to the mound of dirt concealing his gruesome secret, however, Terry's confessions to those closest to him would be his downfall. After the break, we uncover a shocking twist and a betrayal that would result in Terry's imprisonment. After you yeah. told your brother Roy, he called you two days later and says, we need to move it? I told him what happened. And as soon as I got out of the phone with him, he called the police. Did you told them. 
No. You thought my he brother would... shot and killed a guy right in front of me in Oroville, California, a guy named Eugene Hammond, and I lied to the police so my brother wouldn't go to prison over it. I never thought he would do this to me. He so killed this guy right in front is... of me. See, I didn't know he was already in touch with the police. So the police, the police so the police got him to say that? Yes. They got him to take me to where the body was, and then he told them where the body was. So they basically set you up. They told your brother, Roy, you're going to yeah. have him go out there. Were they tailing you, or, or did he have a wire on him, or they were just hoping that he would say, hey, this is I, where it's at? I couldn't tell you. I, I don't know. Two days after, I'm sitting in county jail, my lawyer comes to me. She goes, she goes, your brother Roy wants you to know that he was the one that told him. So your brother, whenever he says, hey, we got to go move it, that was all set up by the police? Yeah. So, yeah, because what I did was I told my wife— go buy another shovel so she goes to walmart and buys another shovel okay and then me and roy drive where the body is and i just couldn't do it i told him i said i just can't do it roy you know i couldn't I do what a few hundred dollars bigger up okay i just couldn't do it and i was crying and, and roy goes okay well let's go well he already knew what he needed and that's where the body was so we'd leave i drop him off at home and Were you suspicious I, of him? Like, you know, that may have been what he was doing or no, that completely caught you no, off guard? I, I had no idea. He told me he would take and give me the, the $250 so I could get my daughter's tickets to California. My family was out there. My family didn't even know what was going on. I ain't told nobody except Roy. And Roy, he turned on me like that. I, I never suspected, never saw that coming. So after you dropped off, you left your brother. That's whenever the police came and apprehended you? A day. Where were you at whenever the police came? I had just left the job to get the money because I was working for a day temp service. And I just got the check and I cashed it. And I had just enough. Roy said he was going to give me $250. And I was pulling into the trailer park, the bi-coated trailer park in Joplin, Missouri. And the cops came out of nowhere. They were everywhere. on the hood with their guns drawn. Everything. You feel like you knew that they were there because you were a murderer? Yeah. Yeah, as soon as, as soon as they jumped on the car with their guns drawn, I knew what was going on. Did you have a shovel with you or anything at that time? No. No, I had a, a fishing pole, I think, in the back of the car. But when we get to the jail, they search my car, and they find a receipt from Walmart. And on that receipt is the date that my wife went in and bought a shovel and some soda. So they went to Walmart and subpoenaed their records or whatever, and there's my wife walking through Walmart with a shovel and, and some Coca-Cola. Did they charge her as a co-conspirator? No. No, because I told them, I said, I said, she didn't know nothing. I said, leave her alone. I said, I told her I was digging worms and broke my shovel. And, you know, for a couple times after that, they would ask me, we know your wife has something to do with that. Your wife won't take your kids. She's doing drugs. She ain't come to see you. Tell us, Terry. The de- this is detectives. They're like, tell us, Terry, we'll go arrest her for her partner's murder. And I'm like, no, just leave her alone. Nobody else needs to go to prison. And, you know, I said, my life's over. I said, just leave her alone. You know? And she's never been implicated in it to this day? Well, they searched her house and everything and stuff like that. But no, no, I, I couldn't do that. I couldn't let her go down for accessory. So you actually got or locked up. After and the- they charged you with murder, but you got interrogated, obviously, and you claimed your innocence. The yeah, I was. I was uh, right after I was arrested. I was taken to the Neosho County Jail in Newton County, and I was interviewed right there on the spot. And I told them a story. You know, I, I was scared. You know, I told them. You know, first I asked for a lawyer and shit, but you know, 
they got me talking, and I told them what had happened. You told them the truth? Because they knew, they, they knew where the body was. I mean, my brother done told them the whole story. But didn't you plead didn't not guilty? Yeah, I pleaded not guilty. But you told them what happened and first? The, yes, and I took the jury trial. So because you, my lawyer's like, well, it sounds like self-defense. And I'm like, yeah. But my lawyer said that I wouldn't be here today if I hadn't buried the body. She said, that's what got me, was burying the body, panicking, coveting, she said, trying to cover up, you know? At the heart of this complex situation is a moral dilemma. Harry lied to protect his brother Roy in the past, only for Roy to portray him in the end. Initially, Terry seemed to believe that family loyalty would override any other considerations. To discover that his brother had not only cooperated with the police but also actively entrapped him must have been jarring revelation that forced him to reevaluate not just his brother but his own judgments and life choices. There's a sense of fatalism in Terry's recounting of events. He knew why the police were there when they came for him. He had already mentally prepared for that moment, even if he hadn't consciously acknowledged it, and yet he still claims his innocence, perhaps clinging to some last shred of hope that he could escape the situation or reframe it as self-defense, at least in the legal sense as he pleads not guilty. Now the question is left off to you, listener. Do you think that it's hard to empathize with someone like Terry who has committed such a violent and hateful crime? Or perhaps you see him as someone who is the victim of his own demise through a series of bad life choices? Whatever your final thoughts are, I wanted to end this podcast by asking Terry if he thought he deserved a second chance and if he was truly sorry for what he did. What was your uh, charge of second degree murder or first degree murder? I was originally charged with second degree murder and then after my confession, I believe they upgraded it to first degree murder. So at this point in yeah. time, you're going to die in prison? Yeah. How does that make yeah. you feel? But I've done things here. I've done things here. I've I got went to school and I got my GED. I'm a forklift instructor. I help other guys get their uh, forklift license certificate. So when they leave here, they hopefully get a job. I maintain a full-time job at the license plate factory. I go and work out at the gym. I go to church every Saturday. and I do my best to stay positive. But yeah, I know I'm going to die here. How does that I'll die alone. How... It's, it's hard. It's, it's real hard, okay? Because... I see these older guys around here in wheelchairs, and I know what waits for me. You know, I see it. I see it all the time. People die that I, I know. You know, older guys, and I know that's coming for me. And I, I've got that coming. I deserve that for what I did. I'm sorry for what I did. I can't change it. I'm not going to sit here and say, "Hey, I think of Cheryl every day," because that would be a lie. What I do is every January 17th, I stop because that was her birthday. She was born in Clinton, Missouri. Her favorite color was yellow. Her favorite movie was Russell Crowe and Gladiator. She loved the amazing race. She could cook and make anything taste good. She was a bad person, but she had a really good, she's a good person too. She just had issues, Yeah. you know? We both had issues. We should never have been together, but we were. And I'll pay for that. Terry, are you f sorry for what you did? Yeah, I am sorry for what I did. I'm sorry I took everybody victims, my daughters, you know? Do you feel, but I'm here. Do you feel like you should be free, that you could live in the community? Should I be free? Yeah, should you? Should I be free? I'd love another chance at life, but I, I, I don't, I can't afford no lawyer, you know? I, 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 I don't know, I'm just, I'm just here. I'm just gonna die here. I see mental health and I take medication. That, that helps me a lot with the dreams. Yeah. You know? 
Well, Terry, I appreciate you reaching out to me. Obviously, we don't have much time left. I think it helps you. I think it helps to be able to talk about it and people can see that you do have feelings and you're not an evil person. You, It happened Thank with emotion. Yeah, and, I, and if it's true that she attacked you with a knife, the only bad decision you made was to bury your body. So I hope that everything gets better for you. Thank you very much. on the next episode of Voices of a Killer. In 2018, Luis Perez shot and killed his two ex-roommates and the woman who gave him the gun. I believe I should have been let out and exonerated of these charges. You still claim that you're not guilty. Why is the finger pointed at you? It didn't matter what the facts were or what the circumstances were. I just looked at it like, damn, he's a Mexican. It's illegal, but if you think along the line, I probably done did it. I just want to hear what your reaction is when I say those names. Joshua Hampton, Sabrina Starr, and Stephen Marler. I was not the one who did this to their people. That's a wrap on this episode of Voices of a Killer. I want to thank Terry for sharing his story with us today. His ability to be open and honest is what makes this podcast so special. If you would like to listen to the raw recordings of these interviews, you can visit patreon.com slash voices of a killer. By becoming a patron, you can access not only this, but hours of bonus recordings, correspondence, and you can contribute to the way the show is produced. A big shout out to Sonic Futures, who handled the production, audio editing, music licensing, and promotion of this podcast. If you want to hear more episodes like this one, make sure to visit our website at voicesofakiller.com. There you can find previous episodes, transcripts, and additional information about the podcast. Lastly, if you enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving us a review on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Your feedback helps us improve and reach new listeners. Thank you for your support, and we can't wait to share more stories with you in the future. Thank you for tuning in. I'm your host, Toby, and we'll see you next time on Voices of a Killer. Hey listeners, Toby here. We have a special announcement just for you. Voices of a Killer is launching its very own Patreon page, an exclusive platform that allows you to dive even deeper into the darkest corners of these gripping tales. By becoming a patron, you'll gain access to a wealth of exciting bonus content and behind the scenes exclusives that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Picture this, at our lowest tier, you can have access to further content with exclusive letters, photos and correspondence that have never been seen by the public before at our producer tier you will have the opportunity to engage with the team participate in q a polls and receive updates on upcoming episodes and developments this tier is perfect for those who have a keen interest in the production process and want to be a part of shaping the show's future you'll also have your name read at the end of our latest episodes how cool At the next tier, you'll have all this and the opportunity to join in our once-in-a-month video chat Q&A session with me, the host, and our production team, allowing you to engage directly with the creators and further satisfy your curiosity. 
And for our premium tier, you'll have all this and the ability to listen to exclusive unedited raw interviews to really hear the true voices of our podcast. So if you're ready to unlock a world of extra content, head over to patreon.com slash voices of a killer now and choose the tier that best suits your craving for true crime. Your support will not only fuel our passion for storytelling, but also enable us to bring you even more thrilling narratives and the voices that are waiting to be heard on Voices of a Killer.